In April of 1987, a neighbor called 911 reporting that a man ran over with a baby who was unresponsive. This sparked an investigation into child abuse, but in spite of medical reports, a failed polygraph, and a reported confession, the family of Jacob Jeremiah Londine is still fighting for accountability and justice. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines and this week's episode. Disclaimer at the top that this is a kid case. I don't usually cover two in a row like this, and I actually pretty much swore off child abuse cases on the whole after I covered the case of Zara Baker on my old podcast. Over the years as a true crime content creator, I have become very aware of what topics are just not ones I can handle well, mentally and emotionally speaking. And child abuse cases are pretty much near the top of that list. This case is different, though, because I actually know one of the people involved. You'll hear his name repeatedly in this episode. Eric Carter Londine is a dear friend of mine, and Jacob was his little brother. That makes it harder to handle in some ways, but I also see the impact of not having justice and knowing that there still could be justice in this case and knowing that I have a platform definitely made me see that covering this case was what I was supposed to do. The main sources for this episode were the case files sent to me by Eric and Eric's own coverage of the story on his podcast, True Consequences, which is linked in the show notes. I did speak to Eric as well, and you will hear some clips from that in this episode. This story starts with Jean Londine and Brenda Crawford. They were a young couple, just 20 and 17 when they married. Their first child, Randy, was born in 1978, but died shortly after birth. In 1980, their second son, Eric, was born. Gene was an evangelical minister, and he was gone a lot for work, which left Brenda and Eric at home alone in Texas. Money in the family was always tight. Brenda didn't have anyone to watch Eric while she worked, and she couldn't earn enough to really afford daycare. So they lived on the one income that Jean earned, except he didn't always send home enough money to cover expenses. There were times that the pantry and the fridge were empty and there was simply nothing to use to fill them. During those times, they got by thanks to the generosity of a neighbor who would quietly leave groceries on their doorstep. And for the first five years of Eric's life, this was pretty much how things went. He and Brenda were very close, and while they enjoyed the time with Gene when he was around, it really was just the two of them until July 1st, 1986. On that day, something happened that Eric had prayed and wished for. He had a baby brother. I asked Eric to tell me about Jacob. Jacob was super energetic, super happy. He was 10 pounds when he was born. He was a a very large baby. 
he was somewhat fearless in a lot of ways. He liked to do crazy things. One of his favorite things to do was we had an old fashioned wind up uh, baby swing. And as the swing would go forward, Jacob would reach as far as he could to grab the front legs. And as the swing started to go backwards, he would pull the entire thing back and he would end up on the ground and he would just laugh. He thought it was the funniest, the funniest thing that had ever happened to him. And he had this laugh that kind of reminds me of Eddie Murphy's laugh a little bit. He would do this kind of, (laughs) 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 that's just how he laughed. It was really bizarre. Um, He was fearless. He, he liked to be, you know, put over your head and he liked to pull all the drawers out of the kitchen cabinets and, you know, crawl around the forks and knives, which is not the safest thing to do. Um, but it's important for people to know that this was the eighties, like baby proofing was not a thing back then. So everything was free game. He was a joy to be around. And I think he probably would have ended up being a daredevil of some sort. When Jacob was a few months old, Brenda and Jean separated pending a divorce. Now with two kids to raise and not many options in Texas, Brenda moved back to Socorro, New Mexico, where she had family. They moved in with her mother, Merlinda, and for geography purposes, Socorro is about an hour south of Albuquerque. Here, with family able to help watch the children, Brenda was able to find work at a local grocery store. And while she was back in her hometown, Brenda reconnected with an old friend who I will call John. Eric requested that I not use his real name. Eric told me about all the connections between his family and John's. John was friends with both Brenda and Jean. John's dad was the pastor of their church. His aunt was Eric's godmother. And his sister was Brenda's sister-in-law. And it's not just that Socorro is a smallish town with about 10,000 residents. It's that they were all within the same church community. And you know how that can make a small town even smaller. John kept coming around as a friend at first, checking on Brenda and the boys. But it very quickly turned into more than friends, and John and Brenda found a mobile home together to move into. Brenda had her two boys full-time, and John had his two children some of the time as he shared custody with their mother. The relationship between Brenda and John did move very quickly, and Eric attributes this to not really anything special about John, but more just the comparison to Jean. Brenda had spent the end of her teen years and into her 20s married to someone who just frankly wasn't around much. Now she had someone showing up all the time, helping out, listening to her, And that type of attention, when you've not had it for several years, does feel a lot like love. And with John, Brenda could start providing her boys with this life she wanted for them, one with a father figure around and food consistently on the table. But it wasn't long after they moved in together that Jacob started getting more bumps and bruises than normal. But it was really nothing extreme at first. Like Eric said earlier, Jacob was fearless, and he was getting more mobile. Bumps and bruises happen. 
Brenda didn't think too much about it at first, and neither did her mother, Merlinda, who still babysat for Jacob. Merlinda later said that she actually looked for signs something was going on because she had heard so many horror stories about boyfriends abusing their new partner's children, but she never saw anything out of the ordinary. But in hindsight, Brenda also noticed something else. Eric didn't really like to be around John. He would glare at him and get upset if he was going to be left alone with him. But again, that's pretty easy to explain away. Eric had just had a lot of changes in the last year. A new brother, his parents splitting up, moving away from Texas and in with his grandparents, and then moving in with John. And there were some signs that Eric may be having trouble adapting to all of this change. Or at least things started getting framed that way. One day, Brenda found sunflower seeds in Jacob's crib, which seemed really odd. John ate sunflower seeds frequently, but the blame ended up falling on Eric. His grandmother had told him not long before this to keep the seeds away from Jacob since he was a baby and he could choke on them. And then suddenly, here they were in Jacob's crib. So they suspected Eric was being naughty and doing the exact opposite of what he had been told. After being the only child and Brenda's sole focus for so many years, surely he was just acting out. Then in March 1987, when Jacob was eight months old, he had a strange injury to his ear. Brenda had been at work when it happened, and John was watching Eric, Jacob, and he had his own two children over. When Brenda saw the injury, she took Jacob to the doctor, and the doctor told her it was minor, it was more or less a scrape. According to John, he had left Eric and Jacob home alone for a short time while he brought his kids back to their mom. He had left Jacob in his crib. So the injury had happened while only Eric was home with Jacob, and Jacob was in the crib, according to John. So Eric was questioned about this, and Eric eventually said that Jacob was in his crib, but he started crying, so Eric picked him up. He ended up dropping Jacob, so then he put him back in the crib, and somehow in all of this, he must have hurt his ear. Now, this story doesn't make a lot of mathematical sense when you figure Jacob was about 20 pounds at this point, and Eric was six years old. He would have struggled at that height to have reached down into the crib and picked up a 20-pound, eight-month-old. But it was a relatively minor injury, and Eric said he did that, and that's how he got hurt, so no one really thought too much more about it. The real issue here was that John had left the boys home alone at six and eight months. However, John rarely watched the boys, so this wasn't a scenario that would likely repeat itself anyway. Now, there is another red flag that Brenda could see looking back around this same time, and here is Eric telling me about it. One day, my grandma had Jacob, and she was, you know, she was taking care of him. She was playing with him like we always did, like the adults always did anyway. They would pick them up over, pick him up over their head and you know, kind of 
play like Superman and stuff like that. And he used to love it. He thought it was the best thing ever. He wanted to go higher. He wanted to pretend like he was flying. And one day she picked him up and tried to put him over her head. And he grabbed at her hair and started clawing at her hair and screaming and crying, shaking hysterically. It took a long time for her to calm him down. So when my mom picked Jacob up, my grandmother asked her about it. She said, what, you know, what's going on? Why is Jacob acting like this? He's never been like this before. He's always loved playing like this. And so my mom confronted her boyfriend at the time to, you know, ask him if he had been doing anything to scare Jacob. And he grabbed Jacob and said, no, I just do this and pick Jacob up over his head. And Jacob was practically jumping out of his arms into my mom's arms. And he got really clingy to my mom. He didn't want to be put down. He was afraid of everything. He had completely changed. So shortly after the ear injury, within a couple weeks, Brenda's mother was watching Jacob again and realized he had a lump on his head. Brenda was back in the doctor's office with Jacob immediately, and Jacob was admitted into the hospital for the hematoma and observation. Brenda had no idea how Jacob had gotten hurt that badly, but John said he did. He had been watching the boys for a short period, and during that short amount of time, he had seen Eric kick Jacob in the head. Brenda asked Eric what happened, and he eventually said that Jacob pulled his hair and he kicked him. Brenda was confused about what was going on, and she was incredibly overwhelmed. This was the second time in about two weeks that Eric supposedly hurt Jacob. She called Eric and Jacob's father, Gene, who was in California at the time, and she said Eric was just not getting the attention he needed and he was starting to act out. It would be best if Gene could take Eric for a while until things calmed down and they could figure out what to do. Now remember, Brenda never saw Eric hurt Jacob. Jacob got injured while in John's care, and John told her Eric did it. And then She would ask Eric, and he would admit he did it. But that doesn't mean there was not a little voice in the back of her head wondering what was really going on. She had also never seen John hurt Jacob either, and he had been a loving and attentive father to his own children. But still, Jacob was only getting hurt the few times he was in John's care. So in addition to having Eric go stay with his father for a while, she decided to continue her policy of not really letting John be alone with Jacob. Eric's father, Gene, seemed to also be a little suspicious about what was going on. Even before Eric came to live with him, he had gotten a phone call from John's ex telling him that he should file a child abuse complaint against John for leaving the boys home alone when he was supposedly babysitting. So when Eric was with Gene, he asked Eric questions about how John treated him. Eric said John hadn't hit him, but he threatened to if Eric lied about what he did to Jacob. So Eric's admissions about what he quote-unquote did to his baby brother came after being threatened that he would be hit. Now Jacob was released from the hospital after two days' admission on March 17th. Over the next two weeks or so, he developed an ear infection, tonsillitis, and then he had a reaction 
to the medication the doctor gave him for that. So even after the head injury, this sickness really left Jacob just not feeling well. He wasn't eating well, and he was fussy a lot. But on April 9th, 1987, he was starting to feel better. Brenda dropped Jacob off with Merlinda as usual around 10.30 in the morning, and then she headed for her 11 to 7.30 work shift. She said goodbye as Jacob was happily playing. Merlinda said that Jacob really was feeling better that day, better than he had been in a while. Brenda and John had plans after her work shift to go look at another mobile home they might move into. This trailer, though, did not have the electricity turned on, so they had to go right after her shift so they could still see it while there was daylight. Merlinda also had plans to go to church that evening before Brenda got off of work. So Brenda thought it would just be easier on everyone if Merlinda brought Jacob home on her way to church. It just made sense for everybody's plans that evening. And though Brenda didn't like to leave Jacob with John for any extended period, this would be no more than an hour and a half. During the end part of Brenda's shift, when she knew that Jacob was with John, she started feeling a bit anxious about it, uneasy, so she asked her manager if she could clock out early. He said no, because it was after work on a Thursday and they were really busy. He couldn't close down a checkout lane during the rush. So Brenda continued her shift, watching the clock, and she heard an ambulance speed by. Not long after that, around 7 p.m., John ran into the store, hysterical, saying that Jacob had stopped breathing and he was being taken by ambulance to the hospital. He said Jacob had fallen off the couch. Brenda and John rushed over to the hospital, and on the drive there, John kept repeating, I didn't touch him, I swear. He kept saying it in spite of Brenda never asking or accusing him of doing anything. When Jacob arrived at the hospital in Socorro, he was in critical condition, so they transported him to the University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, and when he arrived, he was already in a coma-like state. The doctor immediately suspected child abuse. Not only was this his second head injury in less than a month, they did imaging on him after they stabilized him in the ER. The scan showed that Jacob had a massive cerebral fracture and signs of a previous rib fracture that had begun to heal. Because of these suspicions, the police were called. Agent Sue DeWalt with the New Mexico State Police responded to the hospital. It was that same night around 11.30 that she interviewed Brenda. Brenda's information was limited because she wasn't home at the time of Jacob's injury. She was at work, and she told Agent DeWalt that her mother had watched Jacob for most of the day, but he had been with John for less than an hour when the ambulance was called. All she knew was what John had told her, Jacob had fallen. 
Brenda didn't suspect at that time that either her mother or John would have hurt Jacob. Agent DeWalt asked about any previous injuries, and Brenda told her about the incidents that Eric had taken the blame for. She explained that Eric was already living with his father at this point and had been for weeks. She also mentioned that Jacob hadn't been feeling well since the first head injury because he got sick right afterwards. All of this was documented by Jacob's doctor, which isn't something you always see in child abuse cases. But every time Brenda saw an injury, she brought Jacob to the doctor. She was clearly very cautious in that way. Agent Walt also spoke to John that night at the hospital. According to the police report, he said that Jacob seemed fine when he was dropped off by Merlinda. He put Jacob into his walker and gave him a teething cookie and a bottle. John said he was sitting on the floor duplicating cassette tapes for his brother, recording one tape onto a blank one. Jacob was playing in his walker, and he got a wheel stuck on the corner of the box of tapes. John moved Jacob away because he didn't want him messing with it, but Jacob came right back over. So he pulled Jacob out of the walker and laid him on the floor behind him. Then he handed Jacob a few old tapes he didn't need to play with. Soon enough, Jacob started getting sleepy, lying on the floor, so John decided to go put him to bed. He picked him up and started heading to the bedroom when the tape he was dubbing clicked. He put Jacob down on the couch to go change it. He said while he was changing it, he heard a gasping noise and looked over to find Jacob on the floor between the couch and the coffee table, having rolled off the couch. When he picked Jacob up, he had vomited and it was coming out of his mouth and nose. He thought Jacob might be choking on something, possibly that teething biscuit, so he turned him over and patted him on the back to try to dislodge whatever it was. When he turned Jacob back over, he noticed that Jacob's eyes were rolling back. He then ran with Jacob to the neighbor's house to call for help, and both he and the neighbor attempted CPR on Jacob. He told Agent Walt he's not entirely sure what happened, but it was possible Jacob hit his head on the coffee table. When asked about the previous injuries, John was quick to blame Eric, except he said that Brenda's sisters had actually warned him that Eric was mean to Jacob and that he needed to keep a close eye on him, but he told Agent Walt he didn't believe them. After speaking with John, Agent DeWalt spoke with the other adult who cared for Jacob that day, and that was Merlinda. She basically reiterated what has already been said. She also pointed out that she hadn't seen previous evidence of child abuse, but that Eric had been jealous of Jacob. At the end of these interviews, due to the suspected child abuse, Jacob was placed in protective custody. That meant that he would not be returned to Brenda's custody until the end of the investigation. But the investigation would not end with Jacob returning home. Less than three hours after being put in protective custody around 3.35 a.m., Jacob died during an emergency surgery. 
The doctors went into the parents' room to inform Brenda, John, and Merlinda of his death. Brenda immediately became hysterical and ran out of the room. So they waited until she returned and calmed down enough that they could explain what had happened. They said Jacob had been near death by the time he arrived at the hospital. And while they were able to stabilize him for a short time, it just wasn't enough to save him. Brenda had to leave the room again. This was just too much. John, however, stayed in the room with the doctors, and he was pretty agitated. He told the doctors this was going to make him look, quote, real bad. The concern for himself in the moment of learning that a nine-month-old had died was jarring, and the doctors made note of it. One of the doctors asked John what had happened, and John essentially told the same story he had already told Agent DeWalt. But the doctor knew the injuries were not consistent with what John said happened, and he confronted him on it. But John denied that he had hit Jacob. The doctor was suspicious of John and his story, but he was not able to follow up with Brenda on any of it. At this point, as you can imagine, hopefully you can only imagine, she was just too hysterical. She had just lost her baby. During this time, Gene, Jacob's father, had been notified, and he told Eric that they had to go back to New Mexico because there had been an accident. They got on the first flight they could. As Jean and Eric were traveling back to New Mexico on the morning of April 10th, Agent DeWalt called a social worker named Sue Holland with Health and Social Services. She had been assigned Jacob's case after his first head injury had triggered an investigation. The hospital at that time had contacted social services due to suspected child abuse, but that was not the only call. An anonymous caller who identified themselves simply as a neighbor had also called to report that John had been hitting Jacob. When Sue Holland interviewed Brenda after Jacob had returned home, Brenda said the injuries were from Eric, who had just been sent to California to live with his father. Sue said that she initially tried to continue this interview with Brenda at the family home, but John showed up while she was there. He became belligerent, demanding to know who she was, and then he ordered her to leave. She asked both of them to come to the office to finish the interviews, and they did agree, showing up not long after. Both told her that Eric had admitted to kicking Jacob. But as an experienced social worker, she didn't just take their word for it. She also interviewed other people who knew John and Brenda, focusing on John since he was admittedly the only adult present when Jacob got hurt. Those people said it was unlikely John had hurt Jacob. They pointed to how good of a father he was to his own children. While the case had not been closed yet, there was no cause to immediately remove Jacob from the home. This case was also being investigated by the Socorro police, so Agent DeWalt spoke with the investigator on that case. 
They decided that Agent DeWalt would handle investigative leads in Albuquerque and the Socorro officer would handle things down there. At about 11.50 in the morning, Eric and his father arrived in New Mexico and Agent DeWalt drove them to the state police office. Eric was crying and DeWalt noted in her report that she couldn't understand what he was saying, but that Brenda was reassuring him that it wasn't his fault. And I am going to get a little personal here for a minute, reflecting a little more on what I said at the beginning. When I first heard this case, I didn't really know Eric. I eventually connected with him on Twitter, like I do a lot of family and victim advocates and other podcasters. But since then, Eric and I have become friends who see each other in person multiple times a year. We text on a regular basis and We have a truly authentic connection. So imagining him as a little six-year-old going through all of this is much more difficult than it was even when I heard this case the first time. I just don't have the distance that I usually have with cases I cover. So when I read in the report that after talking to Gene, Agent Walt then interviewed little Eric, My heart broke. Eric was asked about John, and the questioning must have been about abuse because the answers noted in the report said that Eric said John never hit him, but he acted like he was going to hit or kick him. He just never went through with it. He also had told Eric at times that he needed to be quiet or he would hit him with a belt. Eric was asked about the March head injury, and he said he didn't do it. He hadn't hurt his baby brother. When asked who did do it, Eric said he didn't know. He was asked if anyone had threatened him that he had to say he did it, and he also said no. The next day, on April 11th, the autopsy report was completed. The pathologist said that the skull fracture Jacob suffered likely happened by a strike with an open hand. This was in part because there was no injury to the scalp and very little bruising under the skin. He would have expected to see a scalp injury if Jacob had struck his head on something like, say, the edge of a coffee table. He also didn't believe that there could have been enough force from rolling off the couch to cause that severe of an injury. The pathologist estimated that the impact would have occurred no more than 30 minutes before the onset of symptoms, meaning it happened during the time Jacob was in John's care, not in Merlinda's. The pathologist did find some slight trauma to Jacob's bottom, but otherwise there were no bruises. John continued to deny that he hit Jacob, and he did consent to take a polygraph, Even after he expressed concern, he would fail it. It was scheduled for April 15th. But the afternoon before, Agent DeWalt got a call from the Socorro police. They said the polygraph would not be necessary because John had confessed earlier that morning. Unfortunately, Agent DeWalt did not put in her report what exactly he confessed to, and the details of that confession are unclear. 
For a number of reasons, there are certain files and documents and reports in this case that have since been lost. Something else that is not entirely clear in the paperwork is why they canceled this polygraph due to a confession, but then rescheduled it for nearly three months later. John showed up on July 9th for a lie detector test. He was given his Miranda warning and signed the waiver form before going ahead. And the relevant questions asked were, one, did you intentionally strike Jacob on the head area on April 9th, 1987? And did you intentionally strike the baby in the head area before he went limp? John answered no to both, and he failed on both. When John was confronted with this, he continued to insist he didn't do anything to intentionally hurt Jacob. But as the interrogation continued, he eventually admitted that he didn't tell the truth when he first spoke to the investigators. He claimed he was sedated and impaired at that time, and he also said he lied because he didn't want Brenda to leave him. But he still said it was an accident. This story was that Jacob was playing on the ground and he pulled himself up to stand while holding onto a chair that had wood armrests. John was kneeling on the floor, leaning over to rub his beard on Jacob's legs in an attempt to play with him. As he did this, he could tell that Jacob was about to lose his balance, so he started to straighten up to stop Jacob from falling over. But Jacob, at the same time, had leaned over John's head. This movement, if you can picture it, lifted Jacob off the floor, and then he fell to the ground hard, hitting the wood armrest as he fell. John said he picked Jacob up and comforted him, and he held him for about 10 minutes when Jacob started acting sleepy. Since he didn't think Jacob was injured, he decided to put him to bed. That's when John picked up the story again about putting Jacob on the couch while he changed out the tapes and Jacob falling and starting to show symptoms of his injuries. So John knew from previous interviews that Jacob's injuries were not consistent with falling off the couch. So here he is adding another instance of Jacob falling that day and getting hurt in a way that was an accident. So this is what the investigation has. They have a story that was not consistent with the evidence. Then they have a changing story. They have a failed polygraph, which we know is not admissible in court. But they did have two medical opinions, both the treating doctor at the hospital and the pathologist who conducted the autopsy, both saying that the injury was caused by someone hitting Jacob with an open hand. But in December of 1987, around eight months into this investigation, the DA determined this was not enough to take to trial. And the case stalled out at this point. Brenda and John stayed together, eventually getting married. At this point, Brenda had no idea what John had or had not confessed to. And she probably thought what a lot of people would have thought when no charges were laid. John had been cleared. But he hadn't really been cleared. The DA only said there wasn't enough evidence. 
And soon enough, Brenda began seeing John's violent side firsthand as he began to grow more and more physically abusive. This is something John admitted to in an apology letter he sent to Brenda, promising not to hit her again. So this isn't alleged. He has admitted to this abuse. Eric, who had returned to Brenda's custody, was also verbally abused and neglected. John would lock him in his bedroom, only allowing him out to use the bathroom when John decided Eric could come out. Eric remembered a time when Brenda had visible bruises from John's abuse, but they had to go to some event as a family. John lined Eric and John's own two children up and gave them the cover story about what had happened to Brenda in case anyone asked. He made them repeat it back until they could say it convincingly. These are the sorts of stories Eric didn't tell his mother about until he was an adult. But the story about repeating John's lie again and again until it was convincing really stood out to me because it showed John's capacity for manipulating children into lying for him. It makes you wonder about Eric admitting to hurting Jacob previously. Now, my conversation with Eric did turn to the impact of this case and the psychological abuse of being used as an excuse for Jacob's injuries. Something that comes up in domestic violence and intimate partner cases and child abuse cases that I think gets brushed over too much is the non-physical violence and obviously the psychological violence that continues through your life to where you are an adult now, you're a father, and you've had to heal yourself Mm -hmm. from what that did to you. Yeah, and I think there's still some effects, you know, like there's this, what I would consider to be like an inner abuser (laughs) voice in my head that tells me just really messed up stuff a lot, you know, and it's kind of an internalized shame loop, honestly, is, is what it is. And yeah, that kind of stuff sticks with you, especially when it happens when you're so young it really leaves an indelible mark on your psyche, I think. And I know as a father, you've been very protective of your son. Some would say too protective. Yes. Do you think some of that stems from your childhood? I think all of it comes from my childhood. Um, I kind of do this thing in my mind where I'm analyzing everything that's happening and trying to assess what the risks are and trying to plan ahead. It's this really bizarre thing in my head. And I do the same thing with my son. I go through like worst case scenario, what what could happen right now? He hasn't texted me for like an hour, like what's happening. Um, I think I've gotten a little bit better as I've, as I've worked on myself and, and healed some of this trauma through therapy and through other, other means. But I know that there are definitely moments where I may be projecting some of my own past into the situation when I'm being somewhat protective of my son. As Brenda saw how violent John could be, she stopped believing that what happened to Jacob was an accident. She thought one day she would finally get the truth out of John and he would confess to her. But she also knew she had to get out of this relationship. She made plans to leave, but John threatened her with a knife telling her the only way she was leaving him 
was in a body bag, and she believed him. Brenda finally was able to leave after John had tried to lure Eric's 13-year-old cousin to the house after he had made inappropriate comments to her. She knew how dangerous John was to her and now to children. So to protect her family, she had to take the risk to herself and leave. John did try to convince Brenda to come back to him, and he even told her to meet him at Jacob's gravesite, and he would finally tell her what really happened. Brenda very much wanted to hear what really happened, and she wasn't going to turn down a chance to get that information. However, she didn't necessarily feel safe meeting up with John. So she told him they could meet at the police station, and he, surprisingly, agreed. While at the station, John gave Brenda his story number three. This time, he said he was tossing Jacob in the air and catching him, except he didn't catch him once, and Jacob fell, hitting the chair. That was, according to John, finally the real story. Brenda didn't believe him, and she still had more questions, but John wasn't interested in talking about Jacob. Promising to tell Brenda what really happened to Jacob was the only ruse he could have used that would work in getting her to meet up with him. What he wanted to talk about was getting back together. After Brenda divorced John, she went to the police to see what was happening with the case and the investigation into Jacob's death and this triggered a bit of a re-investigation. It ended with a warrant for John's arrest being issued on the charge of abandonment or abuse of a child. The affidavit supporting the arrest warrant was filed on August 12, 1992, and John was arrested on August 25th. However, like I said, there are a number of documents related to this case that are missing and that includes the police reports from the Socorro City Police regarding this arrest. The affidavit does mention John's April 14, 1987 interview, which Agent DeWalt indicated in her notes included a confession. However, again, the details remain a bit fuzzy. After John's arrest in 1992, he was Mirandized, and then he was interviewed after he waived his rights. And now John's story is going to change again. He completely stopped with the story he told Brenda and went back to the second story of playing with Jacob on the floor when Jacob began to fall over. This time he said he grabbed Jacob's leg to try to stop him from falling over, but he thought Jacob was falling to the right and instead he fell to the left, so John wasn't able to catch him. Jacob fell, hitting the chair. In this version of the story, John said Jacob immediately started showing symptoms of his injury, and that's when he ran to the neighbor's house. So we're eliminating the falling off the couch entirely. When asked about the discrepancies in his stories, John said he lied before because he was afraid of Brenda's father. John was also asked about the previous injuries, And John said that it was someone else who said Eric had kicked Jacob, not him. John was asked about another aspect 
of his old story, that Jacob had started choking on a teething cookie, and he patted him on the back. John said, yes, this really did happen, but the cookie was dislodged, and Jacob was fine and even had his bottle after it. So this happened before the fall and not after, like he initially said. John was then asked about failing the polygraph, and he said first he was under mental duress due to the stress and grief. Then he said the machine was not working properly. And then he said he was actually totally out of it. And then he said he had taken some allergy medication before the test. So pretty much everything was to blame for him failing it, except that he lied. John said he didn't want Brenda to know what really happened because it was an accident after he was playing with Jacob. And she wouldn't think he was a good father if he couldn't play safely with a baby. Which really makes no sense since his cover story was that he left a baby unattended on a couch, as though that wasn't also unsafe. Anyway, John went on to talk about how hard the loss of Jacob was on him and the divorce from Brenda and that he had to receive counseling after both. John was asked if he might have accidentally hit Jacob on the head when he was trying to pat him on the back to dislodge the teething cookie, and John said that was possible because he panics in moments like that. At the end of this interview, John signed his statement, and he was booked. And then, nothing happened. I mean, I imagine something had to have happened, but it appears all of the documents in regards to this have been lost and or destroyed, and we do know this never went to trial. But there's also no evidence that the charges were dropped either. Eric actually did not know about the arrest until he got the case file from a 2007 reinvestigation, and he got that file two years ago. I asked him why he thinks this didn't go to trial even after they charged John. I don't have definitive proof on any of this. My suspicions are, I would say, somewhat grounded in reality. He was best friends with a lot of the police in town. He played basketball with them every single weekend. He worked for the county. He was friends with everyone who worked for the county. It's a small community. His dad was a minister. They were well-regarded. He was friendly, outgoing, generous, kind in public. That was the persona that he portrayed. So there wasn't a lot of reason to believe that he was capable of that. And so I think that that's part of it. I always say that at its best, the situation is just negligence. And at its worst, it's some sort of cover-up. I don't know. It could be somewhere in between. That reinvestigation I mentioned started because in 2005, Brenda sent an email to the New Mexico State Police desperate for help. She had spoken with the previous two DAs in her county. She had worked with victims' rights groups and really anyone who would listen, and she got nowhere. All she had been told was that they couldn't prosecute because they couldn't give John a speedy trial and there was a concern he would sue the county over it. This email launched a reinvestigation, which uncovered much of what I have gone over, including the fact that so many files and documents seem to be missing. The new investigation found that one reason given as to why this wasn't pursued 
was that Brenda, initially believing this was an accident, would be a problem at trial. It wasn't until after the marriage ended that she came forward accusing her ex of abuse and homicide. I think it's important to note that the violence did not enter their relationship until after Jacob's death. So at the time of Jacob's death, Brenda had not seen that John was capable of violence like that. And then, while having her life literally threatened by John, Brenda felt she had to be out of the relationship completely and safe before she could go to the police. So while I can understand why Brenda initially held to the belief it was an accident and then had to wait to tell the police that she no longer thought it was, I can also see how this could be spun in front of a jury. And I think that's what the DA was thinking about. That said, they did have evidence from the doctor who treated Jacob and the pathologist who conducted his autopsy. And I have seen prosecutions clear much bigger hurdles than a mother not believing her partner was capable of violence. In 2007, this new investigation concluded, saying that the initial charge should have been prosecuted. The case was sent back to the DA, but then they declined again to prosecute. The issue of a speedy trial once again was going to come up. John was charged in 1992. A trial 15 years later would violate his right to a speedy trial. There was also the issue of evidence and witness statements so long after a death. Another issue at the time was that the statute of limitations had expired. However, that is no longer a concern. Abandonment or abuse of a child that results in death is a first-degree felony. And in 2011, New Mexico lifted the statute of limitations on first-degree felonies. That law specifically includes past crimes meaning the statute of limitations was no longer an issue for Jacob's case. So there is still hope for justice for Jacob. I know there's an issue of a speedy trial, but that could possibly be overcome through other procedural methods. Eric has been spearheading the Justice for Jacob campaign, and while Brenda wants justice as well, obviously, she also has another reason to tell the story. I asked Eric about this and the backlash they've received as she has opened up about it. And I know that a lot of what you're looking for in telling this story and your mom is justice for Jacob, but I also have heard your mom on your podcast talk about her experiences and something she really wants to get out is that message to see these signs of abuse that she didn't know about, that she wasn't educated on. And whether those signs are coming and you're suspecting a partner or a babysitter or someone else you leave your children with. And I thought that was very powerful for her to want to also have that educational component so that it will not, hopefully, hopefully that story will save another child from this. But I also know that telling that story has exposed your mom to a lot of judgment online. And honestly, after what I've read and heard, I think people are reading into things a little too much because your stepfather hadn't shown those signs prior to this point. Did you or your mom expect 
that opening up like this would would bring in the criticism like it has i i think we did we've experienced that criticism even in our own family sometimes so i don't think it was surprising i think that what was surprising was how hurtful it, it was and how much i want to defend my mom and in that situation i i kind of early on really started diving into a lot of the comments and you know fighting back a little bit i've i've stopped because my mental health is pretty important <laughs> to me <laughs> to my family so i i've stopped doing that but it it was shocking how it affected us i think that was the shocking part not that it existed i think that's always been the case with domestic violence a lot of people don't understand the nuances um people who have never been through it may think that when when you're in that situation it's always violent it's always you know super dramatic and super intense and and that's not true it's it's very pendulous in a lot of ways because you know it's really bad and then it's really good and then sometimes it's somewhere in the middle there so it kind of lulls you into the sense of maybe this time everything's going to be okay it just really messes with the way that you perceive reality in a lot of ways and at that time he had excuses and and the excuse was you and i had heard your story before i really got to know you but now that i know you well it like broke my heart in a very different way for six-year-old Eric to be blamed. Were you aware at at six, seven, eight, growing up that there was this blame for injuries on you, or were you more oblivious to it? Yeah, I was fully aware of it. And in fact, um, my dad talked about in the police report about the fact that I was feeling guilt about Jacob dying and feeling responsible for Jacob dying when we found out. So that guilt has always kind of hovered over my life in a lot of ways. Brenda and Eric are handling the victim blaming and backlash because it's worth it to save another child. But it concerns me that there may be someone else out there who also has a story like this, someone we can learn from, someone who can give insight that would save someone else down the road. But then they're reading these comments and they decide to stay quiet when what they've learned through pain and grief and regret could help someone else because they're not in a position to take this type of hate. So my call to action for us today is to consider who else will read our comments online about specific situations. We may think we're aiming in one direction, but we need to consider who else we may hit with our words and what that impact can have. That's my call to action, but Eric has a different one for us today, and it is specific to Jacob's case. Last year, I did a campaign with anybody who was interested in helping Jacob's case, and it was 10, 10 Days of Jacob. It was from April 1st to April 10th, it was leading up to the anniversary of Jacob's death. And the campaign was essentially asking everybody who cared about Jacob to call, email, or write to the district attorney in Socorro County to ask him to reopen the case. Within two days, he emailed me and, and asked me to call off everybody because it was too overwhelming for him. And that felt really good in a lot of ways. It really made me and my mom feel 
the love and the support from everybody who has listened to Jacob's story. And what happened in that email, he also copied the attorney general. And he said to the attorney general, I can't deal with this. My office is too small. I don't have the resources or the budget to do this. So I'm giving you the case. And he turned the case over to the attorney general. So the attorney general opened the case last year in about, I think it was about May. It's been about a year. We haven't had very many updates on how it's progressing. And so one of the things that's concerning for my mom and I is we are getting a new district, a new attorney general in January. And so we're kind of going to have to start all over again in a lot of ways. So what I would ask is if people can share Jacob's story, which I know seems like it's not very much, but it does help tremendously sign the petition that we have for the attorney general, because it's going to be a new attorney general. So we need to show this person that it's politically unpopular to not do this investigation and stay tuned, check in with, with Charlie, check in with me and see what's going on as, as updates come up. If we need to, you know, put up a billboard in town or, you know, something like that, that, that might come down the line. And hopefully Charlie, you'd be willing to share that information as well. But for now, signing the petition and sharing is, is enough. And it's more than enough. Getting a case reopened is a huge feat. That That is the first barrier. And a lot of times it's the tallest one. And so that's amazing that you've been able to at least move the needle on the case through your activism and advocacy and sitting down, giving time constantly to these interviews. I know you've done you've done a lot of them. And I know you have told Jacob's story in a way that only you and your mother could tell the story on your podcast, True Consequences. So I will, of course, direct all of my listeners to your podcast, which I've been doing pretty steadily for the last year since I've, since I've met you and gotten to know you and been listening to your podcast. How does your podcast tie into your, your work for Justice for Jacob? At first, I didn't want to tell Jacob's story on True Consequences. I created this show to really help other family members in my state who were fighting for justice to try to give them a platform to tell their stories in their words without having to worry about being edited for context or without having to worry about not having anything new to talk about related to the case. So it really started as a way to honor Jacob and not so much as a way to advocate for Jacob. And as I started talking to family members and and really getting to know people in my community who are in the same situation as my family, I really felt the pressure to to tell my own story because I felt like it was hypocritical of me to expect others to do it and myself not being willing to do that, not being willing to have that conversation. And so I asked my mom and she was she was more than willing to have that conversation. What you hear in that in that episode aside from audio quality that's not that great, is you hear the first time, that's the first time my mom and I had ever talked about Jacob's case together. So it's a very raw, emotional interview. And it was a, a really amazing thing for both of us, very cathartic and very healing. So it's, it's turned into advocacy for Jacob over time, but it's also continued to be a show that advocates for others. Uh, people who are on the margins, people who are often ignored because of maybe some lifestyle struggles that they have or 
because they are born on a reservation where there aren't resources to look for them when they go missing. So this show has really evolved into a way to honor my brother, but also help people in my community who need it. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 